Together podcast. I'm your host, Stefan Morales, thinker, maker, doer behind Working Together, a burgeoning hub of can-do and know-how, inspired to explore who we are and how we can work together better. I'm fascinated by all the ingredients that you need to really make something happen, to really engage a system and the groups of people within it. And so, on this podcast, you'll hear a lot of stories from folks who've made interesting things happen, their trials and tribulations, their reflections, their lessons learned, and the actionable advice that they have to share. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I did. In this episode, I have a conversation with Bob Chartier, who is well known in Canada as a thought leader, author, and a down-to-earth practitioner of new models for employee and citizen engagement, systems thinking, and building leadership at all levels. His style of leadership is based on the concept of an entrepreneurial practice off the corner of the desk. This approach is predicated on the belief that the real job of leaders is to create more leaders and that leadership can be found in the file rooms as well as the boardrooms. During our conversation, we explored Bob's lifelong commitment to andragogy, his work with community groups in Calgary over the past few years creating the Music Mile, and why you shouldn't pitch your ideas to your boss, among a whole bunch of other things. I hope you enjoy it. So, yeah. you know, maybe one thing that we could... Um, Maybe we could start in on your on on what has filled those seventy years, you know. Uh, well, almost seventy years. You're not there yet, yeah. but um, maybe talk a bit about your background and just kind of tell the story of of how you came to be involved in the work that you are known for. I think across the country with with the learning organization and communities yeah. of practice and the facilitation skills, all of this stuff. Um, but also, you, you know, your other, uh, your other areas of interest too. I know you're in music right now too, quite a bit. So, um, right. yeah, just give us some background, well, Bob. Uh, well, uh, you know, the background is, is, is pretty deep, but I mean, it, it, very simply, I mean, I was, the am just heading right now into, uh, you know, the hometown in, the, in Saskatchewan, uh, I grew up in a small town in, in the prairies and, in uh, in a, in a blue collar family, and um, that's going to be important in the story at some point. And uh, the, you know, I tried a bunch of different things. You know, I I, I tried plumbing, tried uh, you know working out in the West Coast and lumber camps and stuff like that, and finally ended up at a very young age. Uh, I got married young, had kids, and I went back to school at that point and decided to become a teacher. I spent two decades in the education business, but as a bit of a, um, you know, outlier in, in the education system in the sense of uh, ended up working with, uh, with First Nations a lot. And uh, in the beginning, I'm, I'm hearing a little chatter on the line there. Is that all right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh. I can hear you so loud and clear. Okay. Okay. Sorry. Uh, anyways, so my... Um, uh, the education stuff started up in Churchill, and I got involved with First Nations, and that led to the whole notion at that time. Uh, the the big idea was for us to help 
create a fourth school system in Canada. There was there was there was four school systems. One was the private school system, the parochial school system, uh, and the public school system. But there was something called the federal school system, which was a school system run by the federal government for First Nations, uh, mostly in on-reserve schools. And so the whole project was to um, have First Nations people control their own education system and take charge and have school boards and run them just like anybody else would. And so I got involved in that whole project. Uh, and it lasted for a couple of decades. And um, But it gave me, in the meantime, I'd done some other things. I worked on one of the first environmental studies in Canada and the public participation side of that and a few other projects. Hmm. But the main project was in the first two decades of my public service career was with First Nations education. And at the end of the end of the piece, I was involved in probably helping to transfer over 50 schools to First Nations control, as well as um, for various levels of public service, not only for uh, the, the federal government, Indian Affairs for a while, uh, but I also worked uh, quite a number of years, about seven years, for First Nations government. So I worked for a tribal council, I worked for a band, and um, I was one of the first superintendents of a, a band-controlled school system. And um, in, in the middle of everything, I uh, uh, went back to school in, in, in uh, my midlife and uh, did a master's in, in the whole role of, of learning in, in, in knowledge economies. And uh, what I think is probably the number one theoretical model for uh, for organization management, which is the learning organization. Mm-hmm. The, the, no, the notion that it's the number one tool to manage in a knowledge economy is is, is learning. And uh, we've, we've really, we really have degraded learning in a lot of ways. And we've made it into training where we have an episode of learning, you know, or we've, we've still used the industrial model of learning, which is always the classroom curriculum models and as a kind of a radical educator i really related to the notion of andragogy rather than pedagogy and uh, the pedagogical model was you have a teacher at the front of the room with the curriculum and you dump the knowledge into you know the students heads the andragogical model is the adult education model which is the student it's student directed what does the student need to learn and the teacher becomes a resource, and uh, more more to the to the student. So it's student driven rather than teacher driven. Mm-hmm. So um, that all really made sense to me. I loved it. And then when I came back into uh, at the time, I was I was working for the federal government for Indian and Northern Affairs, and at the time that blue collar stuff really kicked in strong, hmm. in the sense that I wanted, I knew that. I was going to end up kind of being a, that guy that comes in and does a seminar or does a talk about this stuff. And I didn't want to be that guy. I, I People who know me know how much I hate motivational speakers. I, you know, I, I think it's a scourge on the, on the earth. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. people, people that climb a mountain and then get $10,000 to come and make us laugh and cry and, and feel motivated. And uh, so I, I wanted, I thought 
you know, I don't want to be that guy at the front of the room. I want to be the guy that sends them home with at least five tools that do really practical things. That was the plumber in me, practical things that they could use Monday morning. So I started investigating, you know, when I was at school, I, I, I met with a guy from General Electric and learned the workout tool and, hmm. and Harrison Owens uh, open space tools. And at the time, there was a ton of, of uh, people that were really experimenting with how to engage human beings in a different way. And I was fascinated by all that. And I just soaked up those tools and mm. ended up writing a little book, a little red book of some people might be familiar with. I wrote it for the federal government and it had a bunch of those tools in it. Became probably the federal government's most popular piece of print material ever. And, um, it's still in demand, but they they don't print it anymore. Well, you know, I'm just I'm just gonna jump in here, sure. Bob, and and just talk a bit about that little pamphlet. Uh, I I have a copy of it myself. Oh, you do. Eh? Uh, Tools for leadership and learning. Yeah. Building a learning organization. Okay, that's so it. that that's it. And there's a web page component too, which is actually it's not it the web page doesn't work anymore. So you'll have to. You'll have to let the folks know that you work with in government that they got to get that uh, that page back up and running because I've talked to so many people in the province who reference either that web page and the tools on it or that little book. And well, I remember like coming across the book in an office. It was it was basically in a big pile of things that they were you know based like we had multiple copies of it or whatever and it looked like they were going to be just kind of languishing there so i just i just grabbed one and i've had it with me ever since and i and i refer to it uh quite a bit it's great so that's a great story mm-hmm. uh you know I, i've had people tell me that they've pulled it out of their purse in in uh, adelaide new you know australia and it, it 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 was really popular and and i'm sorry i there's nothing i can do about the fact that uh they've taken it out of print and taken it off the web page it's really sad but uh they're not i don't think they're going to put it back but the good news that's the bad news the good news is that i just wrote a new book which is called handcrafted leadership tools um, uh, the art and craft of engaging communities and uh, workplaces and and it's got all those tools in it but from a different lens now and the Mm. lens and this is, you know, it might be a good opportunity to say that when I started to do this work, I made a tactical or a strategic error, I guess, in that I knew the learning organization. You, you know, you always talk, we, we talk about theory and practice. It's, and, and too many people in my business, in my work, are theor- theory people. Mm-hmm. They give brilliant theories and they don't give you anything to do Monday morning. And the, there's a, the opposite is just as bad, to give people a couple of, uh, of tools, but they have no context. Uh, I would say all those tools like the Myers-Briggs and all that, they were just tools and, and there, there was no, uh, not a lot of context for the mm-hmm. people that, that use them. So I, I, I didn't quite understand that myself, I guess. And so when I said, here's the theory, the learning organization, here's the seven big elements that we should pay attention to the context and then people said well we want to use those tools and we want to be learning organization people i I come up with the idea of this corner of the desk practice 
where it's just what you you do. You have a job, and then over the corner of your desk, you become a public service um, commentator or you know uh, uh, research, whatever you want to call it. That's your practice. That's something that you probably don't make a lot of money on, and that you do out of kind of a love of an interest uh, around this kind of work. And so I had this practice. I didn't know what to call it. So stupidly, I called it a learning org practice. And then I met this amazing guy down from California who started introducing us. And I can't remember his name right now, but he introduced us to the concept of communities of practice. Mm. And it all just started to make sense uh, as, a, as a leadership model that people that find a practice have actually found a, a way to contribute in a leadership kind of way. And so in, in BC, they really got this. And so there were hundreds, of, uh, literally 10, 15 years ago, hundreds of public servants who uh, determined that they were gonna become learning organization practitioners. And they were great practitioners. It was just an unfortunate term because there's no such thing, as I found out later, as, as a learning organization practitioner. Mm. Uh, a learning organization could have a hundred practices. Coaching, facilitation, conflict resolution, health and safety, recreation, social media. You can find a practice. There's just tons of practices mm. in a learning organization. And, uh, and, and so I had to figure out, well, what was the practice that I'd been doing and that a lot of my friends and colleagues have been doing? And I figured that what that practice was, was, it was engagement. Mm-hmm. That what we were really doing uh, in, in our work was finding ways to engage people in the workplace mm-hmm. in a stronger, stronger way. And so that's, that's I switched midstream from learning organization practice to engagement practice. Mm. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's really, it's, it was really big for me to have to admit that I'd made a mistake there, but it's really big for a lot of people in British Columbia who still see their work as, uh, you know, through that one lens of learning organization. And, and so one of the things I'm, I'm really enjoying right now is I'm reconnecting with a lot of those practitioners and helping them kind of make the switch in their heads because engagement is so exciting and it's so important right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, our engagement scores are so low in organizations and, and uh, we need to get them up and we need, we need to understand that engagement is not consultation or having, you know, one town hall every a year with coffee and donuts, that engagement is an everyday practice and in every day uh it's being measured every day how people whether people are engaged or not so that's that's what that's the shift that's where i'm at now is is um is is in the full throes i guess of 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 an engagement practice and helping people when you look at engagement it's so big you know engaging the individual engaging the team and then the one that, of course, fascinates me the most, which came out of learning organization theory, which is systems, right? Systems mm-hmm. thinking, which Peter Senge was so good at kind of turning us back onto. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, so the work that I'm doing now, you know, is when we're working with a child advocacy center, the Sheldon Kennedy Center in Calgary, we've had to put seven different organizations, police and nurses and so, together as a system. And they have to relearn how to, how to work outside their silos. And uh, so you've got uh, really interesting um, uh, requirements now that are uh, that is rooted in the engagement question. Mm-hmm. So that well, that's a long a long ramble there about about my last forty five years in public service. But the first two decades were the First Nations, and it was also an engagement exercise. Mm-hmm. Although I wouldn't have known it at the time, uh, the last two decades were working inside uh, mostly the federal government and trying to bring uh, these kind of tools, practices, ideas into that government, but actually doing better work on the side with the BC. The BC government, I got a lot of unbelievable support and response from them. They were very, and the BC public service I find is still the one really hungry for, uh, for looking at this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I've met a few uh, folks who've, you know, either attended some of the workshops that you put on um, or were part of the learning organization community of practice. And, you know, they've, they're just excellent facilitators. You know, they're, they're folks who just know how to, you know, as you say, engage a room or a situation. So I really, I really like that. I mean, because the learning organization is you're right you know it's a it's how you describe the organization as a whole it's not it can't necessarily be a community of practice that's kind of what you're saying right yeah i think i i think what i had to learn really quickly is um uh first of all when you when you like you you mentioned that one of the things one of the things that happened in the beginning was we were seen as facilitators and Facilitation is a is a practice in itself. It's a great practice, actually. Uh, but basically, when you study facilitation and you become a what I would call a classical facilitator, all you really do is is help a room get their work done better. Mm-hmm. Right? You go, you go into a room. You have, you facilitate uh, a, a, the session. Why I don't call us. A community practice of facilitation is because I think engagement is a lot deeper than facilitation. Mm-hmm. When you become an engagement practitioner, you have facilitation skills and you got a bunch of tools in your pocket. But basically, what you're how when you work with the organization, you're working in a deeper way. You're you're working in design. You're working in strategy. You're working in you're you you become a person that is valuable for when a project is going to occur, like let's say strategic planning as an annual exercise. Well, the engagement practitioner, and I'm, I'm just now writing a new paper, uh, an essay on this, that we should be, how to use strategic planning exercise as an engagement exercise. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's way beyond this, you know facilitation. It's actually engaging whole systems in in uh, in the project mm-hmm. of strategic planning, rather than just a couple of planners and executives going off to a resort, so it's it's um, I uh, 
it's really important for me that that engagement is is um, its own practice as mm-hmm. opposed to a variation of facilitation. Well, yeah. I, th- I think when you think about engagement as opposed to facilitation, or kind of the more descriptive. Um, container called the learning organization engagement is uh, it's all about taking the system and the people and the processes the resources all these different elements and um, engaging them right like turning them on you're you're trying to turn on an awesome outcome from 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 all these different things absolutely you got it and and let me give you a story that shows you how engagement is different from consultation or facilitation. So a lot of people know the story about when I retired, I, I uh, bought an old rag top and went down to New Orleans and, and uh, you know, I busted in Nashville and I, you know, recorded in Memphis and I just went to all these old music, you know, the, the I went on a musical journey is mm-hmm. what I did. When I came back, I was one of the things that struck me was how each of those American music cities had something that we didn't have in Calgary. And that was a music district. We had music venues, you know, nightclubs or or places where live music was, was played, Mm -hmm. but there was nobody ever said, I'm going to go down to this district. Like in new Orleans, the the district there is called the French quarter. And you don't, you don't go to, say I'm going to this bar in New Orleans, you say, I'm going down to the French Quarter. Mm. So I live in a kind of an area that's a natural music district. And uh, so I, I came back and I was talking about this to a friend of mine, Meg Van Rosendell, and who's an organizer type of woman. Mm-hmm. And, and we, we both thought, wouldn't it be great to create something like that in Calgary? Now, here's the old, old school way you would do that. If you wanted to create an arts district or a music district in a city like Calgary, the first thing you'd do is draw up a, a proposal and present it to, to City Hall to, mm-hmm. or to the City Council. If they liked it, they would say, okay, we're going to give it to our planning department. The planning department would like it, they would then do a commission of study. Then the study would recommend forming a uh, implementation committee who would then uh, look for a budget who would then hire a coordinator, right? Yeah. You understand what I'm saying here? Oh, it's so familiar. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it, absolutely. Absolutely. So we said, ah, that's not how we want to work. So we want to try it as an engagement process as opposed to uh, a bureaucratic consultation process. So we just started walking up and down the street and we talked to business people, we talked to musicians, we talked to uh, uh, book, booking agencies, we talked to everybody who cared about music, neighbors, the whole bit. And we just started saying, what well, you know, would this be interesting or not? And of course, we started getting a resounding, of course it would be, this is an awesome idea. And after, you know, four or five months, a name started to emerge, the Music Mile, and then, you know, we, we had a big you know, we used one of my tools, a big conversation cafe in uh, in the folk festival hall, and close to 100 people showed up, and 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 you know what? It just happened, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden there was this thing called the Music Mile, and uh, when the mayor was announcing 
the year of music in Calgary. He said, and by the and the music mile has happened. And then he turned to Meg and I and he said, what the heck did you guys just do here? You, you, <laughs> you know, you, you created something without asking me. And he laughed because we got a good mayor. But I, I guess Nancy, that's... Right? Yeah, mm-hmm. Mayor Nancy is a wonderful guy. But what I'm trying to get at here is there's, there's the whole notion of engagement. And and I'm not just talking... Workplace engagement is, you know, where I spend most of my time. But I'm also really... Citizen engagement is really tough right now. We hardly have sometimes 50% people voting. We have people won't go to school board meetings. We have a, a real citizen engagement problem as well as a workplace problem. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I just think it's wide open room here uh, for us to re-engage our practitioners, put them under a new flag, you know? We're gonna fly a new flag now. It's gonna be in the engagement flag as opposed to the learning organization flag. And uh, we're gonna help our organization start to get their engagement scores up. Simple as that. Yeah, I think, I mean, what you're saying here, it, it, it fits perfectly for inside institutions that have their own dynamics and pathologies and everything to work through. But then also, I mean, it's it's kind of what's needed outside and between, you know, like uh, like your example here with the Music Mile in Calgary. This is this is kind of the stuff that working together is really interested in as well from the kind of nonprofit side of things and, and from the... Uh, you know how, how do you how do you kind of make something happen in a community? How do you get people engaged in dialogue around exactly. change, as opposed to just kind of discussion, and as opposed to you know strategizing a grant application or something like this, which is kind of you know it's what, it's what yeah. you set out so well there when you were uh, comparing the two. So yeah, uh, that's that's huge, Bob. That's great. Well, it, you know, we we got to stop. Like, for example, in in city of in my city, if there's a three acres of green space, and uh, you got all kinds of options, you got a developer who wants to put condos on it, you've got uh, kids who want to make it into a skateboarding park, uh, you know, well, the city has a uh, the word I'm looking for a responsibility to consult with the neighborhood and people on how to use that green space. And that's a very focused, uh, critical thing to do, which is to consult. But once you've consulted, then you make your decision and you deal with the green space. It's over. Engagement is not consultation. Engagement is what you want to do is look at this neighborhood, you know, over here, that is struggling and, and, and realize that if they, if they were to engage their citizens, their business people, uh, their, their, they're not the, the organizations, if that community became more engaged every day as a community, they would go places mm-hmm. just like the music mile. Right. So you, you, we really, Government people have to start to understand the difference between consultation, which is an episodic thing, 
and and engagement, which is a continuous thing. Mm-hmm. And it's just like like the difference between learning, where you go for a two day course, which is an episodic learning moment, and learning on the job every day, which is a continuous learning at the moment. Right? Big stuff. And, and and again, it goes back to learning or theory, but it's the difference between something in your life that's just an episode and something in your life that is every day and continuous. And it's kind of, it that is necessary in those instances. I don't know if you're familiar with, not in, in those instances, but in many instances where you're trying to get collaboration and partnership between organizations and communities and neighborhoods to really sing. It's necessary to have that continuous process towards it. This is something that we're working on together until we have kind of created a culture or a community around the solution or uh, the problem solving or whatever it is that's happening there. And I don't know if you're familiar with this book. Um, it's Rescuing Policy by Don Lenahan. But I read it a few years back, and he works for the Canadian Public Policy Forum. And yeah, in, I, know, I, I know of him, yeah. Yeah, and in that book, he talks a lot about, uh, you know, a lot about how kind of public engagement can look for the government in terms of solving some of these these really tough and difficult problems and it sounds kind of like you know where you're at in your work right now is you're you're trying to reframe the stuff that you did on the learning organization side of things which i think you know um it went logically to the place of you know helping public servants and and other professionals get better at facilitating positive outcomes between groups etc etc and now you're kind of moving into this other domain which is how do we actually move the dial on some of these you know bigger policy questions i guess uh and a key component of that is engagement it's getting all the right people at the table but not just for a weekend right it's an ongoing thing there you go that you have to so that yeah that's that's great. I'm really, and really excited we, about that. Well, me too. And it's 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 absolutely critical what you just said because we 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 have a tick box approach in government. In my 45 years, that we, oh yes, we'll do that. We'll have a town hall, and then we tick the box that we engaged people. Well, no, you didn't. You had an event. You didn't. That wasn't an engagement strategy. That was just an event. And, but this tick box approach is killing us, right? And, and we just, we need to, to understand that, um, uh, that engagement is, you know, an ongoing forever kind of thing. And uh, it'll go up and down. The levels of engagement will go up and down, but hopefully they're continually going up a, a little bit uh, in order for us to survive as a democracy. and. And for communities to survive, for organizations to survive, uh, we can't afford to just, uh, uh, you know, do it every once in a while and, and then tick the box and think we did something. So here's a question then for you. So given that, you know, we, we know we have big problems that we have to solve, how can we, how can we introduce an engagement strategy approach into our workplace? So much of the work that that I'm aware of from, from, from your hand is around how to implement these learning organization tools and, and things like this. But how do we do that for the purposes of putting together an engagement strategy? Well, 
that's a really great question. And, and I, I think one of the things that we have to work, one of the, the frustrations for me is the people with the power to, to even open up the conversations uh, are still struggling with the concept of engagement. They kind of know, you know, senior executives kind of know that engagement is important, but they also think that, well, if I just have that town hall once this year, I've done my, I, we engaged them and it was fun, you know? Mm-hmm. And they, they, they see it as a kind of a lightweight kind of a thing. Uh, and so I, I think the big project is to, you know, is, is deeper understanding uh, on the leadership side of the importance of, of continually working on the engagement kind of side of things. And, uh, uh, for example, I, I think I mentioned earlier, like I, this paper I'm writing right now, which is exploring the notion of taking just a, an everyday thing, not everyday, but once a year thing like strategic planning, and instead of making it a compliance exercise that so we just get it done, uh, and we make it into an engagement exercise. So it's, we engage the whole system in, in terms of, uh, thinking and, 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 and ta- having, we have strategic thinking, strategic conversations, we build strategic capacity and, uh, and you know, we, we kind of uh, use it as an opportunity and an engagement opportunity as opposed to a compliance opportunity. And, and so I think that's, for me, the biggest thing that the, the we have to do is, is show, um, show our leadership that this stuff is in their best interest. Mm-hmm. They're going to not only get a better strategic plan out of it, if it's a, a full-time engagement process as well, but they will, um, uh, I, what did I say? I, a better, they'll, they'll not only get a better product, but they'll, they'll up their engagement scores mm-hmm. and people will feel more engaged, right? So there's some unbelievable advantages. And then the, the part that I, where I come in is I say, hey, you don't have to get me to come in and do this. Just bring me in and I'll train 30 of your people in the community of practice, and then you don't even have to pay for it. <laughs> you know, you, you, you got your own people doing it. And, and, and that's a, an important thing these days, too, that this work is, you know, that we built strategic capacity in our organizations to do this work ourselves mm-hmm. as opposed to have to have yes. outsiders do it, right? Yes, exactly. So there's, yeah. a whole, there's a whole bunch of business reasons why we need to rethink our our relationship with engagement yeah no it's it's so important and i you know i would say that uh a good way to almost think about it in your head and communicate it out to others is is to think about it as you know you've got a collection of people and teams and systems and you need to turn them on you know like or you need to reactivate them or uh, you know, you need to switch this one into high gear and turn that one down a bit. And, yeah. and, uh, cause I think, I think so often we get, um, we just, we start coasting along, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then suddenly something in the landscape outside of that system changes and it throws everything for a loop. And suddenly there's reorgs happening inside the organization and it's, 
it's a big change management nightmare. Yeah. Um, but if you're kind of always inviting change into the work that you do by asking that question about how do I t- how do I turn this on? How do I steer the ship towards this new outcome that seems to be emerging on the horizon? Then you're you're kind of more nimble. So I w- I wanted to um. I wanted to ask you uh, if you could kind of, in a similar vein, maybe elucidate a bit an interesting comparison that you bring up in your book, uh, The uh, Bureaucratically Incorrect, which I have here with me. Um, oh, you do, eh? I do have it with <laughs> that's, me that's right That's a here. valuable little thing. Hang on to it. <laughs> yes. Um, so in it, uh, and I'll, I'll quote what you say here. So you're talking about David Bohm. Um, and his work on dialogue. So you say, dialogue, if you will, is the cognac of conversation. Simply put, dialogue is a way for people to inquire together through focused conversation. It differs from discussion, a word which comes from the same root as percussion and concussion. I like that. That was pretty funny. (laughs) Wherein people tend to bounce ideas around and perhaps even try to score points. So that's discussion. Dialogue, on the other hand, comes from the Greek dialogos, with dia meaning word and logos meaning through. Dialogue is much more the flow of meaning through a group of people. And then you go on and you say, four essential practices include voicing, which is speaking your authentic voice, listening deeply without resistance, respecting yourself and others' integrity of position, and suspending, stepping back from your deeply held assumptions and certainties. And I, I, I just would love to hear any of your thoughts around that, because that passage is, it hits the nail on the head, I think. Well, it's interesting. I haven't heard that quoted back at me for a while now, and I, I, I was fascinated by all that stuff. And when I wrote that book over a decade ago, uh, there was no, I don't think there was any smartphones at the time. And I, I saw a, a poster the other day that is kind of going viral around the place. And it's a bunch of young folks sitting in comfortable chairs, maybe in a coffee shop, I'm not sure. Mm. And they're all uh, looking at their, their devices. And um, the the tag on the poster says, never in the history of human beings, like I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but this is what I would say, but in the history of human beings, have we had so much information and so little knowledge and wisdom? And, and, and because what, it's the exchange of information, the exchange of ideas, mm. where, which is what Baum would call dialogue. It's the exchange of it that makes it, that turns it into knowledge and wisdom. And, when the exchange is is techno, a techno exchange, it's just an exchange of data. Exchange, it, 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 there, there is no. Um, what when when three people are four people and sitting knee to knee have a conversation, even for five minutes in a world cafe or an open space, um, the you can feel the electricity. You can feel that it's not just an exchange of. Uh, of of information, it's actually that's really interesting. Never thought of that, and and you can feel kind of the growth of knowledge and mm-hmm. wisdom in there. 
and and so <laughs> this stuff has has become <laughs> excuse me since I wrote the book, I think there's even more um, uh, it's even more critical to uh, to understand the role of conversation in in uh, in knowledge kind of management and knowledge acquisition mm. and uh, and and we we've been thrown for a loop i think by by technology and um, you know some would argue i don't i'm not i'm not going to make the argument yet but i see with my own grandchildren the, the argument like uh, how much is this technology and this device kind of approach to communication is this is this going to increase their knowledge and their wisdom as human beings or are they going to start to lose some skills and 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 acquisition skills i don't know i'm, mm-hmm. I'm just putting it out there but i it's interesting that you brought that 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 up because i think i mean boom i've i've i kind of studied that studied dialogue and some techniques and it's just a powerful powerful idea when six people could sit around in a circle and and not respond to each other but respond to the idea in the middle of the room mm-hmm. and uh it, it's 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 exciting stuff but oh my god we we've been thrown for a big loop by technology uh i've got executives now who are uh, I <laughs> I don't know where I, I if I wrote this in the new book or not, but I the, you know in my time and I, don't, I hate to sound like the old guy, but in my time when a manager in the morning at eight thirty uh, his secretary would bring in the mail and he would spend you know half an hour forty five minutes going through his mail and answering it drafting responses mm-hmm. putting it in the outbox. And then he would say, well, the mail's done, now I can get to work. And today, we've got senior executives who every time their phone beeps, they answer it, the uh, email, and they are doing mail all day. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, a big, that's a big thing, man, when, when, when it's acceptable to do mail all day. Well, it's blurred, and right? It's just incorporated it's, into everything else. Exactly, and I exactly. think I think for somebody from your generation who who saw how it was before, and you you saw how separate it was, right? Like, my God, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna do the mail first thing in the morning, and then when it's done, I move on. You know, yeah, I, I do some work, right? <laughs> and, and and now people are doing mail all day. Yeah, and and it, it, in a way, would you think that it kind of transforms what mail is? Maybe now mail isn't mail but mail is just of like a form of instantaneous telegraphing or something right well like, it is it, yeah it's an it's, it's an immediate ex- email is it's not a thoughtful response like mm-hmm. it's not a thoughtful letter where you sit down and and give a thoughtful informed response to somebody's inquiry it's an immediate response right it's transactional it's transactional. There's that's the better. That's a really great word. So it, it's it, it's sort of more, you know, it's it's less. It says it, we call it email, but it's it's just um, uh, what do what do we call it in the in the television world? Um, when it's just a snippet, like you you only get to talk for 
I don't know, 15 oh, seconds. Like a news bite. Yeah, a bite, a news bite or mm-hmm. whatever. So everything is, is yeah, now now in just in, in, in bites. And so you get a lot, a lot less thinking, a lot less understanding, a lot less um, informed responses and, and much more instantaneous. And that's why that poster was so powerful. It's mm-hmm. it's an exchange of information. We've never had so much more information across our desk or our, our devices in a day. But whether that in, is being turned into informed knowledge and thoughtfulness and wisdom is a real big question. Yeah, yeah. and I, I would say that it is kind of a, a practical and ethical question that, you know, for for my generation and for for folks growing up in this day and age and and being professionals in this day and age, I think it's a really live question. How do you cultivate self-discipline in relationship to the constant accessibility of communication tools, whether it's social media messages that you're getting binged on your phone or... Um, emails that you're having to respond to, you know, I, I do think that teams on the professional side, so teams really need to have dialogue actually about the pervasiveness of, of email in, in their work lives and determine what, what is and isn't okay in terms of response times and things like this, because sometimes folks are on the phone and responding to email so quickly because that's what they need to do to stay on top of their work or, you know, they need to, they need to be constantly accessible and available if a question arises and they need to show that they're responding right away. That might work in some teams, but then in other teams, email could be thought of differently. There might be more flexibility in terms of saying to your supervisor or your staff, like I only do email in the morning at this time and so if you need something urgently then you got to call me and so bob i'm going to i'm going to suggest a really great little chapter in a book that you may have heard of it's called the four hour work week and it's by tim ferris oh yeah many many of my listeners will probably know about this book already but um in it there's a little there's a little chapter i think partway through maybe halfway through the book but it's all about how to cultivate a low information diet so that you can get more work done and i think i think stuff like that like self-discipline around cultivating that approach to information is so important for us to be able to get to a place where we can start to consciously say you know we need to have dialogue around this problem or around this solution or around this elephant in the room and that's what we're going to create time and space for as a group and a community yeah, it's uh, my, you know, I shouldn't call her my friend necessarily, we're not, but Margaret Wheatley, I got to know her a bit, and one of the tools that I put, well, that she taught me, that I put into the new book, I call it preventative maintenance, but she suggested at the minimum, a team should have at least one hour a week, which is not very much out of your time, one hour, where they go into a room together, and they look sit with each other and say, what do we need to talk about today? And it might not even be business. Hmm. No agenda. Just have a have a conversation for one hour. And and I think people find that almost horrific. Like I don't you know I, I, I don't think they're I don't know, I'm I'm just 
going to get some response, I suppose. But it it uh, it's amazing that we're at a stage in our our lives where it's hard to even ask people uh, that work together to just sit and talk to each other for one hour a week. <laughs> it feels radical, and it's you know it's it's amazing to me that it, that it's a radical idea. But it, 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 we're we're at a point now where even on a team they're only communicating uh, basically electronically. They're having very little face to face. But I'm I don't want to sound like the old guy here. I don't want to sound like the, the luddite uh, because I've been I've had again very good success with the BC assessment people when we designed a conference. I I call it my my model a hybrid model mm-hmm. where we use we use practitioners we. We have electronics where we have the guest speakers speak through the electronic medium, but then the practitioners in every 17 locations put people into face-to-face conversations and engage them mm-hmm. uh, around the, the thing. So uh, we don't; it doesn't have to be all webinar where we spend the whole day in front of the screen. And we know that we, we've got to use technology to connect people across time and distance. So uh, I'm I'm actually quite uh, encouraged that we might actually start to find models uh, to manage it. I agree. And and this is one of the things that really inspires my work is is trying to figure out how we can use the new technology in a way that uh, isn't dehumanizing, basically, right? That actually leverages our capability to have dialogue with each other in that that sense that you outlined so well and have conversation. Um, and I don't know if you're familiar with this notion, but have you heard of the flipped classroom model? You know, I, I it's ringing a bell, but it, I, I, I think, I think it's because I did watch, I, for the listeners, I should say that Bob, um, Bob came and presented uh, as part of a, a, um, a learn at work week, uh, special. Um, and so the theme of this learn at work week event was online and kind of digital learning and things like this and so bob came and presented on on uh on this hybrid model of how we might use digital tools to have a world cafe and what that would look like and we tried it all out online and uh for those who had a team of folks that they could that they could work with who were watching with them um they got to kind of participate in this very decentralized world cafe model which i'll say bob was pretty cool i was alone at my desk so i didn't quite get the uh yeah. get that full experience but but i think for for people who have teams it, it's it it was really interesting um and then so the the kind of idea behind the flipped classroom is basically that you you treat all of the kind of learning moments like where you're where you're kind of getting information from the instructor or you're reading an article or something like this, you treat those as something that you do alone. So you don't, you're not attending a lecture together with everybody and all watching a presentation because ultimately that's not really using the power of the group to its, its most potential, right? So you're giving people the lectures and the readings and everything and they go and they do that on their own time they listen to a podcast or whatever they do that on their own time and then the online component where where you're kind of bridging geography is um is like a group discussion 
is, right. is a space almost like a lab. So like if you've ever taken science classes where you have a lab, where you have a, a problem that you have to solve in three hours and you're in a little team with people and you're working on it and the teacher's kind of walking around the room there to answer any questions or provide guidance. Mm -hmm. It's kind of yep. almost like that. And then that is kind of what the online moment yep. becomes is, is more like a lab. And I think that that really, that kind of hybrid approach to how can we take, you know, what, what does education look like? How can we take what we all know and, and uh, understand from our own experience as high school students when we were younger or whatever, how can we take those little tools and models and kind of flip them on their heads or rework them in interesting ways using these new digital tools? We might get to a place where we could engage a lot of people across a vast space uh, in really interesting ways. So I, I'm, I'm pushing a little bit back on you, I guess, for being the... For being the old guy, but I, I I I also recognize that you know you're aware of that too, and and the hybrid model that you came up with was very interesting there with the World Cafe on online. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I think that it's going to be, it, it just needs a lot more work. We have to experiment more, and hopefully, your generation will not just lock into either the techno side or the face to face side, mm -hmm. but find a way. To see what works and where it works and what's appropriate and 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 and, and just start to play with this stuff a little bit more. Mm. What I found in my generation, they just were looking for something new and then they just adopted it, holus bolus, and they they didn't play with it and they didn't critique it and 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 there was a sense that the techno side was good and the other side was bad or mm -hmm. you know vice versa and and so yeah, it's it just a matter of. Um, Learning is learning is all about putting the whole thing in a lab and figuring out what works and what doesn't work. And I was just going to say that the the thing that strikes me about it all is, you know, the deputy minister that comes in and brings two hundred staff into a room, you know, and 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 spends forty five minutes trying to teach them about this new policy through a PowerPoint, and then has twenty minutes of bad questions coming up from the microphones where the new world would be give those people that powerpoint presentation and make them read it as homework mm -hmm. and then come come to the session uh prepared to have a great conversation about what you read exactly and you know and 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 then then you're going to get something done uh but we're we waste a lot of time uh you know just pounding people through uh you know the powerpoints and the and, and and that kind of thing so that's that's where the tech you know again you have to flip it on its on its ear mm -hmm. and uh and, and get a lot more mileage so wow I'm, i know we're we're mm -hmm. kind of coming near probably where you're arriving your destination point oh we're here we're here yeah you're here <laughs> so can i ask you just one last quick question what? absolutely and this one is kind of more for uh, young professionals who work within organizations who are trying to implement things. Um, you know, so you, you have all these resources out there, whether they're kind of available or, 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 or not, you know, and we've got the, we got the one, if you're lucky enough to find the tools for leadership and learning, building a learning organization, that little, that little flip book. 
Um, but if you're not lucky enough to find that, as you say, it's in your new book. Um, and so I'm wondering if you could maybe just talk a little bit about your new book and how you would, um, how you would have somebody who's a new public servant or a young public servant implement some of these ideas in their workplace. What are some of the challenges that you've, that you've experienced and what kind of lessons would you like to share with folks on how to overcome them? Well, the, the first thing that I would, I've always said to, to a young person, somebody said, what's the best piece of advice you could give a young person? And I said, get off your knees. And what I meant by that was, in my generation, we would come up, you know, a young person would come up with a, what they thought or felt is a great idea. And, and then they, they are pitching it to the boss. If they get an audience with the boss, they pitch the idea. And the poor boss has just been pitched... A, you know, 13 things that day already that he's got to say yes or no to. And, <laughs> right? And so he's like yeah. looking at the kid like, I don't know if that's a good idea or not. So I'm saying stop pitching stuff. Stop going in on your knees and asking for permission to do this or for a yes or a no or putting always putting the bosses in a, a, a situation where they're making a decision about you. Mm. And instead, do this. So, you know, you... Um, you walk in and you say, uh, thanks for seeing me. Uh, I've been reading the strategic plan, and I realized that we we have a uh, – and by the way, I just want to say before I, I, I say this, Margaret Wheatley's definition of leadership, four words, how can I help? And mm-hmm. that's the single, the single mom with three kids who goes to a girl guy meeting. She's already got two jobs, and, and she turns around after the meeting and says, excuse me, how can I help? That's somebody stepping into leadership. Mm. So what you do as a young person is you you walk in and you say, I, I noticed that we said we were going to do this by October 15th. The deadline is coming, and I don't think we've really got it done. And uh, the manager says, yes, like, it does seem to be a problem. And then you say, how can I help? And at, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and the, the manager says, well, I don't know. What do you got? Well, I actually learned a tool the other day, and I thought maybe we could, you know, we could we could uh, go and have a, a session and uh, work out on this, and I, I, you know, I could maybe lead a workout. And so, what you, I guess what I'm trying to say is that your best bet these days is not to go with answers, mm. but to go to go with possibilities. How can I, you know, and and, and to be an offer, not to be an answer. You're mm. not an answer. You're, and, and, and a lot of young people get mad. I, I had this great idea, and I, I went to see him, and I, he, you know, I didn't get anything. Well, no, but stop stop going in as an answer and start going in as an offer. Hmm. And and I think that would be the best piece of advice I would give people. And the, the second piece of advice is you can't be an offer if you got nothing. So you better find a practice. You better find something that you got a passion about that's not about your job, but it's about fixing things. Mm-hmm. It's, it, and so you become a, you know, become a coaching practitioner, a facilitator, an engagement practitioner, a, you know, a social media, whatever. Find your practice, and you will then find that you can be an offer, because I can offer you these tools. I can offer you this skill. So I guess that's, that's, great. that's, what, I, that's what I would say to a young person, is find out how you're going to be the best offer ever. Not the best answer. Bob, 
thank you so much for this conversation. That that was a great lesson to conclude on. I'd I'd love to do this again at some point in the in the future if you're game. So sure. I hope we can always kind of keep those lines of communication open and um and uh, and I wish you uh, a great visit with your with your family and yeah and and thank Thanks you so much. much. I appreciate it, and uh, and good luck to you. I think you got a great practice going there, and and I, I will be supportive. I'll tell you that much. It's great that you are getting this stuff out into the into the ether. I, I, so I important. important. Yes, it's so important. So <laughs> thank really you. Is. Thank okay, you. man. Okay. Take care. You too. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bob Chartier lives in and works out of Calgary, Alberta. He retired from 45 years of public service in 2014 and is now engaged in his own leadership through engagement practice. Bob's long career in public service ranges from organizing school boards from scratch in isolated First Nations reserves to engaging deputy ministers and their management teams in building their first team charter. He worked a great deal with emerging leaders and youth through his executive leadership instruction at Royal Roads University and the many communities of practice he instituted in all four levels of public service. His work in organizational and community engagement was recognized with the Head of the Public Service Award in 2000. You can find the resources mentioned during this episode at togetherworking.com slash the Working Together podcast, all one word. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast for more in-depth conversations with innovative thinkers, makers, and doers sure to inspire you and help you make an impact in your world. And don't forget to rate and review so that I can continue to bring you the social innovation goods. Finally, if you'd like to receive the weekly Working Together Review newsletter where I share interesting finds and actionable insights about teamwork, facilitation skills, social innovation, cooperatives, behavioral economic strategy, political theory, and a whole bunch of other stuff, you can sign up at togetherworking.com.